This is a Fedora Chronicles radio show special report for September 24th, 2020. Dune Foundation Messiah Ginsburg. Jason Cousineau, special guest and new co-host, superfan Melissa from Missouri, and Eric Fisk, that's me, open the show catching up on new trailers and the excitement over the new cinematic version of Dune. The conversation then moves on to other great book series that would make for great movies. Or maybe not. That's all part of the discussion. Jay, Melissa, and I then talk about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and why civility is a necessity during this time of civil unrest. The show wraps up with the three of us rethinking the concept of the phrase defund the police. Perhaps maybe we prefer refund the police better. The Fedora Chronicles radio show is brought to you by our patrons. Patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the show, show notes, behind-the-scenes action, and more. Coming soon, patrons will also be eligible for exclusive products and promotional materials. You can also support the Fedora Chronicles radio show and show off your amazing taste and style with new products from Zazzle. Zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. 12.5% of each purchase goes directly into keeping this podcast on the air. The Fedora Chronicles radio show can be heard on all of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, Player FM, Castro, and Breaker. If our podcast isn't on your favorite platform, let us know right away and we will pass along a special gift to you as a thank you. Our email address is fedorachronicle at gmail.com or you can reach us on Twitter at Fedora Chronicle. Once again, here's Jason Cousineau, Melissa from Missouri, and me, Eric Fisk from the Fedora Chronicles. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> hey, hey. One of the studies I saw regarding raccoons said that as much of our brain cortex, is, our sensory cortex is devoted to visual input in the human brain, that's the same percentage that the raccoons have donated to their sense of touch. So when you see a raccoon and they're like patting the ground around them, they're actually building a mental map of what the ground looks like. That's an amazing way to start this special edition of the Fedora Chronicles radio show. (laughs) Hey, hey, if you had been here from the beginning, it would have made more sense. I was too busy cooking dinner for my beautiful wife and the rest of my family. Where's mine? It's right here. Ship it out here, man. I will, as a matter of fact. Yeah. It takes three days to get out here. It won't be any good then. Well, then you know what? You should have been here when I made it fresh. Okay, well, I'm not going to argue about that, but I fucked up big time at work today, so I had to stay late and fix it. All right. Well, I want to tell all of our listeners here, because we are recording a very special edition of the Fedora Chronicles radio show, News of the Week, this time with Jason Cousineau and superfan Melissa from Missouri. Hello. So... 
I wanted to do this with you, Melissa, for quite a while. And we do special shout outs to you on various episodes. And um, uh, I almost consider you actually, I th- you're right now, you are probably as close to an official staff member because of all the great research you do and you send us links to news stories that we often talk about and it's great finally having you here on the show well it's great being here and i'm glad i've been useful Uh, uh, yes not only not only with all the work that you do but also the um, enormous amount of support that you give to jay and i so we can't we can't thank you enough i can't thank you enough you have no idea how much it means. Just, just when the link goes out, and then we we see in the our chat room, you're like listening to it now. It's like yes, she's the one that's listening. There's, there's yes, have a listener. <laughs> I laugh. I get angry. I cry. You know, there it's 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 a beautiful thing. Okay. Um. Do we want to start with our topic du jour, or do you guys have something that you guys are just dying to talk about first? I'm I'm fine with going with topic du jour, Melissa. I'm fine unless you want to continue with Dune. <laughs> For folks who don't know, there was a big, huge release of the Dune trailer. I can only assume that's what you're talking about. Yep. And I'm and I'm scrambling here trying to get a uh, a patch for I'm actually going to try I want to see if I can actually patch this through to the audio board and see if we can listen to it and get the audio in for our listeners. I don't know and I don't is that a big deal or not? Is that Is that something that we want to do? I don't think it's that big of a deal. Okay. We can we can but, limp along without it. All right. So what did you guys what did you guys think I of the trailer? What did you guys think of the trailer? Melissa, you're a bigger fan than I am, you go for it. Well, I haven't really seen it yet, but I'm actually looking forward to it. Um I remember seeing the first Dune movie. Uh, the blue eyes were just freaky then, and I'm sure with special effects, they'll be even freakier now. Uh, only wish that my father could be here to watch it with me. Because he was the one that introduced me to science fiction and science fantasy. I was such a huge... Uh, uh, I have to actually see if I can play this little bit of audio here. What you hear in the background is the um, closing credits music from the original soundtrack of Dune from 1984-1985 by the super group Toto. Um, this is the like one of the first... Uh, movie soundtracks that I ever bought before actually seeing the movie. Uh, I I bought it on vinyl, and I thought the music was absolutely, totally phenomenal. And I used to listen to this music while I was reading the book before I actually saw the movie. 
Um, and this music was so special to me. I actually went out and I bought a second LP that has never been opened. I still have a brand new vinyl edition of this and I have it on CD. I actually bought my first CD player just for this music. I know that makes me sound like an old old school nerd. But um, this in this book, when I first read it, when I was 14, 15 years old, was really sort of super important to me because of all the, the, philo the philosophy and the imagery in the movie in and of itself. Um, and I, I, I ripped through all of the other Frank Herbert novels. And um, I'm also a big, huge fan of his other work that he did the he did stuff other than dune oh oh yeah he he also wrote these incredible essays he was a guest uh writer for various other science fiction magazines some of his non-fiction work is just simply phenomenal i can't say enough about it and i love the way that he was actually able to get you think he was able to get you to think about things like um deifying political pundits and, and political um, candidates and the way that we look at elected officials. And you, you look at somebody like take Jack Kennedy, for example, like people would be willing to do anything for Jack Kennedy because he was charismatic. And that's, that's a, that's a dangerous thing in, in, in democracy. That and what he wrote about um, worship of leaders, especially in the book Dune Messiah, just blew me away. And it's part of the, it was it's part of the foundation of who I am. And um, maybe maybe I'm unique. Maybe I'm maybe I'm special, or maybe I'm crazy. That's why the 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 Dune movies were so important to me. Or not the not the Dune movies, but the Dune books. So, as I was telling Melissa earlier, I have started reading the first Dune book like a dozen times. I've never gotten past like the 200 pages, 300 pages of setup that he's doing in the beginning where it's just a data dump on this is what you need to understand about this, this setting in order to get the books you're about to read. And for whatever reason, I've never been able to get through that. Now, that being said, there was a number of patrols when I was in the Coast Guard where there was a group of people who they would read the Dune books and then discuss them. They kind of had a book club, even though we didn't call it they didn't call it a book club. And I would listen to their discussions because I was always fascinated by Dune. My brother had read it, loved it. And the setting was very interesting to me, but I just couldn't get through that initial data dump. And I, I have high hopes for this new movie coming out. It looks phenomenal. Yeah. It really does. The previous movie that they had made, uh, the one that starred, I think it was Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, that, that was one, who it was. Yeah, that one required you to have read the book in order to fully understand what was going on because they were not given, really the first book of Dune kind of needs two movies because there's so much to the world you don't understand. 
And I know, you know, the differences in storytelling styles between when you're writing a book versus when you're showing it in a movie, you can portray that differently. So maybe they don't have, they don't have to do as big of a data dump in the beginning, but I'm hoping it goes well. I'm hoping it, I'm really hoping it does. I'm hoping it inspires me to get my ass going and get past those first two or 300 pages. Melissa, tell me if I'm wrong. If you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank I, you. <laughs> for, I mean, I mean, for me, I just devoted every night to a chapter. No matter what, I'm going to, I'm going to read this chapter. And I, when I eventually got through it, and I, I, I read it straight through the first time doing that. And once I actually got the main plot of the, of the book down, as soon as I ended the, the, the first page, from the first page to the last page, after I finished reading the last page, I went back and I reread it again almost immediately. And the second time, it just cooked right along. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot of times with great books, that's how it is, because there's just so much in there that the first time you read it, you're just like skimming the top and you're you're catching all the little stones that are on top of the of the path. But then when you go through it again, you actually see everything underneath your feet, everything that's holding that path up. Kind of a metaphor. No, it's a beautiful metaphor. Also, um, there are these uh, appendixes at the end of the book that I think that you you ought to read first and see if that helps at all. Oh, um, God, I can't get through the introduction. You want me to read the, the appendices at the back? Give it a try. Just just tell me what you think. It it might actually help. Um. Because there's a lot of like really great background information. The the other thing about th what a lot of people don't seem to understand about th the the books themselves or the first book Dune. This was this is supposed to be Frank Herbert's magnum opus, and he spent I'm not even sure how many years, countless years, writing this book and doing all the background, and he had literally reams and reams of paper that he put into storage before he passed away and his son Brian found them decades after his dad passed away and then wrote a, a, other books in the Dune series a couple of prequels a couple of sequels and these books are more plot and dialogue driven but the original Dune book has so much philosophy to it and so many thought ideas and thought bubbles that I thought were um, breathtaking and amazing when I first read the book. Do you have, are you also interested in audiobooks? Because there are a couple of audible See, now, versions. I have, been, I have been thinking, considering, especially like the books that I have a hard time reading through, um, I have been considering doing an audiobook. I love audiobooks. I love going on a road trip, just throwing in an audiobook and driving for six, eight, 10, 12, 17 hours. So that's something I've def definitely been considering. 
I didn't think of Dune though, so maybe I should do that. But one thing that really kind of impresses me about Dune though, that I was able to pick up from those conversations I overheard on the boat, was the depth of world building. Everyone talks about Tolkien's world building, but I would ha I would argue that that Hebert's probably right up there in terms of depth of, of world building and the setting and all of the nuances that go on within the story that once you understand the setting better just makes it more fulfilling I, also, I think I have to yep. agree with that because on also too when you're building worlds you're building new stuff on top of touchstones that the readers will be able to identify uh, either folklore or history. I hope I, got, I didn't lose you guys. No, I'm still here. I'm still here. Um, okay. I actually need to just turn down the volume of the background. I love this background music, by the way. <laughs> um, and the background music also... Um, I, I feel like a, 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 a DJ on a late late night FM radio station. You're listening to Brian Eno prophecy theme from the movie <laughs> Dune 1984. Stay tuned. Top of the hour. Weather and news. <laughs> oh, gosh. And if you have a contest, we'll all stop our cars and try to find a payphone just like it's 1983. <laughs> Gotta be the seventh caller was a lot harder to do when you were driving in a car with no cell phone. Exactly. Very true. Uh, for this contest, name all the people who narrate the book Dune by Frank Herbert. I, I'm looking oh, at this and I and I, I did not I did not first of all the length of the audible version is 21 hours and two minutes um and it has one two three four five six different people who read the book now that's not like they're performing parts that's just they're reading I, i'm 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 not i'm not sure i'm actually i'm actually going to uh trigger this and I, i'm actually going to buy this this book and just to listen to it again or, or listen to it for the first time because it's been more than 10 years since I read the book. But but I think it's amazing how, Jay, you can read Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Rings and all of the, the Lord of the Ring books. Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King. You can read all of those books, no problem at all, but you have a problem with Dune. And I don't think that well, that's... Well, I wouldn't say I can read those with no problem at all because I get... You know, I get hung up on the fact that a battle takes up two and a half pages, but, you know, a random field that they're passing away is an entire chapter. You know, um, Tolkien was clearly not enamored with war, which you would expect from a World War One veteran, especially one that served in the trenches like he did. But I also, um, I, there's something about, for me, a fantasy setting is more engaging than science fiction setting. I mean, I look at the way my daily life is now. I work online. I work on the internet. 
in my pajamas if it's a good day. Um, meaning that I actually got up and it felt like putting on pajamas to go to work. So the the draw for me into Tolkien is that I find a setting with, you know, people running around with swords, fighting dragons. I find that kind of setting more engaging to my imagination than people climbing in spaceships and flying around. And that's totally a hang up on my part. I understand that. I think one of the Oh gosh, I think my I think one of my first series was the Foundation series. Oh, Heinlein? No, uh Isaac Asimov. Asimov, okay. Yeah. Unless I've got the title wrong about nope, you the got encyclopedia. No, nope, you're absolutely totally You got it right. right, I got it wrong. Yep. <laughs> I remember reading that when I was ten. Holy cow. That's impressive. Wow, I didn't I How didn't... much I remember? Not that much. I just remember that, you know, my father and I had great long discussions about it. Yeah. I was reading Teen Titans when I was 10. <laughs> yeah. So, Melissa, I, I think that may, maybe we need to have an intervention with uh, with Jay. So, no, I'm just kidding. No, really, we need to have an intervention for Jay. I mean, no. Um, uh, the, the, the thing about the Foundation novels... And in the background noise, besides listening to Brian Eno, you can actually hear my, hear my beautiful wife, um, who was eating the fabulous dinner that I made for her, uh, take care of the dog. So I, I, pardon me for the, the background noise you might hear. Um, I think that what really sort of set me off about um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation books is how cheated I felt after reading them and realizing how much George Lucas borrowed from the foundation books, especially all the background information about like the old Republic that Obi-Wan talks about in um, the star Wars book and how there's like, there was two found, there was two foundations. There's the first foundation that um, made the encyclopedia Galactica. And then the second foundation, which were like these mind control agents to make sure that uh, psychohistory goes on, goes well and saves the galaxy from a million years of chaos. And, and, and that kind of thought pro that, that sort of that thought process and where George Lucas was going from that, he, he quote, borrowed from the Foundation books. Well, he also yeah, borrowed from Dune. I mean, you know, the first oh, yeah. scenes of, of Tatooine, it's, you know, well, it's the yeah. sand planet. I mean, you can't deny that, but at the same time, you've got to remember, George Lucas didn't create Star Wars as an original sci-fi. He created Star Wars as an homage to the sci-fi of the 50s and 60s. This Star Wars was an homage to the samurai movies he loved, the World War II movies he loved, as well as the, um, like, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. That was more his inspiration for creating the setting. And then he borrowed elements from other great sci-fi works to kind of fill it all out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. George intent in creating star wars was not the same as frank hebert's was when he was creating dune or um the foundation series you know what i mean it 
he was doing something different with a different medium. So he was worried more about, okay, is this, is this something practical that I can actually get on celluloid so that people can see it in theater? And let's be honest, as much as I love Star Wars, this story is not all that complicated. You know, the characters are not all that great. Let's face it, the dialogue isn't even all that great. But you put it all together and it's a great series. It's a great escape from life. Which you're approaching a movie differently from the very beginning than you are approaching writing a book. Authors look at things differently than screenwriters. They approach things differently. There's literally nothing that an author is limited by except the limitations they place on themselves. Whereas a filmmaker and a screenwriter has to be concerned with how am I going to get this image on the screen? If this is, if I have a character who's six inches tall, how is that going to play on a screen where the screen itself is 10 feet tall? You know what I mean? And dealing with other people who are more human sized, you know, so there's, there's a different aspect to storytelling in that medium that you don't have with a book. A book is a lot more open with what they can do. I think that it's become more of like a sport to rag on George Lucas unnecessarily um, because I think that he's a he's a terrific collaborator, but there are a couple oh, of yeah. couple of things that he did that I wish he didn't do. And, and I'm not even sure it's like I want to get into that um, because I'm still sort of basking in the glow of still talking about Dune. Um, I, 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 I really honestly regret Nobody has tried to make a decent series of movies or TV show based on Foundation by Isaac Asimov. I think that that would be the next great, quote, Game of Thrones, unquote. But every every book is is a leap forward in a couple of centuries with one or two exceptions. I and I don't know if audiences have the patience for that. I think that if they're going to do a series on foundation, I think they'd have to take one of the specific books and make that a a um a series and go from there. I think that it's got too much complexity to hold too many people's attention for a 2-hour movie and then do a series. I think that it it would scare people off. Well, let me ask you this, too. How easy would it be to, or how difficult would it be, rather, to present the, like, especially, like, I know, Eric, you like a lot of themes in your books when you're reading something for your own enjoyment. You really seem to enjoy having those complex things and those philosophies. When was the last time you saw a movie that was genuinely entertaining to people the lay, pe- lay person that espoused a lot of themes of philosophy in it and really expanded your thought process. That's not what movies do. Would Hein would I keep wanting to say Heinlein? Would the Foundation series be able to come across without losing that central core part of it that you love so much? Oh, absolutely. Um, you think so? Because the thing is, is that. Th- um, Isaac Asimov wrote his books on on two levels. On the first level, 
they're sort of like sci-fi action adventure movies or sci-fi action books with like a lot of things happening and um so many things happen in just one chapter and they and a lot of his books make you sit at the seat of uh, uh, the edge of your seat and then but then there's a couple paragraphs here and there where there's like philosophy dumps or thought dumps or or yeah, idea see, bombs and i think i think that moviegoers can watch these movies and actually in, actually enjoy them for what they are on both levels because Isaac Asimov was able to write really great science fiction for the layperson. So let me ask you this. One of the problems that I've seen with some action movies is in their desire to up the action quotient, they never get they never give the audience a chance to actually breathe after an intense action sequence. Sitting on the edge of your seat while reading a book is different because you can close the book you know, if, if you need to, I don't know, go do the dishes or whatever, you can close the book and do that. Being on the edge of your seat, you know, when the action gets intense, you can like close it and take a minute and be like, wow, yes. that was amazing. But in a movie, you really can't do that. That sort of medium is is really limited in the storytelling it can do. So is it does does it go too far or are there enough of those pauses to bring up the philosophical yes points? i do i actually do are they, are they frequently okay but, I, I don't know i'm but, just asking but here's the problem you're not asking the right guy <laughs> you're 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 I, i'm i'm the wrong person to ask this question i i think moviegoers are smart enough and they're intelligent enough and I think so, that there's, well. there's, I think that there's, okay, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm outside of the norm. And I can look and see how, like, um, I can tell you why Battlefield Earth failed at the box office beyond the fact yeah, that so it was. Can I? It's a shit movie. It's a shit movie. And they tried to cram in this 600, 700 page book into a two or three hour movie with a horrible budget and there was nobody to say to the makers of this film you can't do that that's that doesn't make sense what made the original star wars movies so great is that you had gary kurtz say to george lucas you can't do that that's that's garbage you can't you can't do that i think that if george lucas had somebody like a gary kurtz with him during the making of Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. I think they would have been much better movies. But also, if he had somebody like Gary Hertz, there would never have been a Howard the Duck. <laughs> well, you got to remember, when it comes to movie franchises and uh, that sort of uh, creative endeavor, the... The people you work with on movie one are not necessarily going to be the same people you're going to work with on movie two or seven or 19. That's just how that industry works. That's how things go in that industry. So, I mean, I think Howard, I guess what I'm saying is Howard the Duck was going to happen whether we wanted it or not. No matter I think who was Howard the him. Duck would have been better if it had not been live action. Um. 
and maybe got rid of the sex scenes. Thank you. Thank you. The sex scene was the thing that was really, you know, that that was just disturbing. There was no need for that. I remember watching it with my daughter. I had forgotten all about the sex scene. (laughs) She was, she was like, she was like, I want to say she was like 10 or 11 at the time. And she's watching this movie and then and she looks at me and goes, dad, why, why did you show me this? What is wrong with you? (laughs) You know, it's amazing the stuff that we see when we're younger that we think is just fantastic. And then when we become parents and want to share it with our own children, we go, oh my gosh, what drivel. (laughs) Oh my God. I see for me, that was Voltron. My ex-wife and I, we saw the Voltron series out on DVD. We bought yep. it. There was a tin that had the entire first season. We were like, oh, Voltron, this is awesome. Mike, our kids are going to love this. And we got the kids all together, sat them on the couch, my ex-wife on one side, me on the other side, popped in the DVD, hit play. The ending, the, the beginning credits were just finishing because they had a cold open thing and then they launched into the credits. Yep. And I remember having this sort of, fixed smile on my face that had no warmth or emotion behind it whatsoever and i glanced across the ch- the heads of my children at my ex-wife and she had that same fixed smile on her face and we we're like what 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 happened what, this this used to be so good what happened were we really that stupid uh the yeah yes i think we were that yes, stupid yes yes Yes, anyone who has seen the Speed Racer movie can attest to that as well. Yeah. I admit I've not seen that. I just remember the old television series. Yeah. The cartoon. Melissa? Yes. Do you like Coherent Thought? (laughs) Do you you enjoy being able to think coherently? You know, I've I've had trouble doing that for the last, I, I don't know, four to eight years, so. Do you want that exacerbated? (laughs) <laughs> then do yourself a favor and do not watch the speed racer movie i will say it's much better when you're drunk i'm gonna to have to you take know, your word for that well i'm just saying you know you get i you know i i danced a couple of rounds with the kraken and then watched <laughs> speed racer and thought this is pretty fucking good it was more like this is really good let me get out my saxophone <laughs> I wouldn't mind driving a live action car. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah. yeah. See, now that's, that's a totally five. different thing. Oh, yeah. Now, here's, that's a th- a totally here, different here's thing, the though. thing about the, the Speed Racer cartoon. How many times did Speed Racer's um, brother or, or, or cousin or whoever. Racer X, his older brother. His older brother. Or, or that fucking monkey. How many times did his Jim little. Jim. How, how many times did Chim Chim and his brother sneak into the trunk of the car and and somehow they were it was they were like part of the race part of the adventure by accident or that I gotta be honest I thought that fucking chimp lived in the goddamn trunk okay <laughs> I could have sworn that like at some point you see him like he stuck, pulls over for a pit stop or whatever, and someone opens up the trunk and just throws in a bushel of bananas and then closes it again real quick without anyone seeing. 
All right, so... <laughs> so how how did how did this is how we devolve we started with <laughs> highbrow frank herbert's dune and the philosophy of not putting all of your eggs in one basket when it comes to messiah political figures then we're talking about foundation then we talk about star wars and then that devolved into voltron and speed racer <laughs> Well, it's not my fault this time. I haven't had any goddamn rum. Yet. <laughs> well, you know that's coming. Come on. All right. So anyway. Can't let... blame me. I don't drink. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the the only sane, sober one of the bunch tonight. So I wanted to get your thoughts. And I want to go with Melissa first because she's our special guest. And hopefully uh, she'll be a, a reoccurring host on the podcast if we're able to keep doing this and and not lose listeners breaking and I wanted to, and I wanted to get Melissa's take on this I, I was thinking about as soon as I came home Friday night I wanted to call Jay and I wanted to say do you want to record a special talking about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and by the time I got home I talked myself out of it I couldn't do it Saturday or Sunday. This is actually the first chance we've actually been able to do this. I want to ask Melissa, and I know this, I, I don't mean to sound sexist, but since that you are the only woman in this group tonight, is there something about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that we don't get or we don't understand why she's so special? Because to me... And I admit, I have not seen the documentary on her. I haven't seen the movie about her life. Is there some... I just see her as just another Supreme Court justice who happens to be a woman. And I think that, I think that she's also the first Jewish woman to sit on the bench. Is there something else about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that, that I don't get and I don't understand um, about how important it is that you know, that she passed and what this means to, to women in the United States. What am I missing? Well, um, she was the second woman on the Supreme Court. Um, but she was so much involved in women's rights all the way from the time she was in law school to the time she got into the Supreme Court. I mean, it just wasn't, she wasn't just a, uh, a, a lawyer and judge. I'll tell you what, let, let me bring up something here. Let me grab real quick something on Facebook, see, or not Facebook, but the internet. Isn't it all Facebook now anyway? No. <laughs> the Facebook, um, the internet exists for um, new sites, Twitter, Facebook, and the Footwork Chronicles radio show. That's all I know. I don't know if there's anything else. Is there anything else I need to know about that's on the internet? Jay, be careful. I, I'm going to, out of respect for our guest, I'm going to be nice and polite, even though she knows what a pervert I am. Oh, I you weren't the first person I hit over the head with a baseball bat. Hey, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> um, in the... It wasn't until the 70s and the 80s that women could get loans 
get a credit card under their own name, rent an apartment, uh, go to the doctor and maybe get put on birth control pills or have a hysterectomy without her husband's approval. And I have not found any documentation of this uh, in the last few minutes, but I have seen something that uh, Ginsburg was very involved in all of that with the ACLU, where she headed the Women's Rights Project. There we go. The year her second child entered nursery school, she was uh, promoted to full professor at Rutgers and began volunteering for the ACLU and the Women's Rights Project. Uh, she became the first woman to hold a full professorship in Columbia. Uh, I know her husband read a, wrote a cookbook because I have read it. Uh, it's kind of off topic there. Sorry. That's all right. Um, we live on off topic. You've heard the show. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, actually, let's see. There's here's about where she advocated vehemently for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, but she regretted the court's logic in Roe versus Wade in 1973, a case not decided on equal rights argument, but on a privacy one. So. so, I know I've learned more about Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the past two or three years than I knew previously to that. Prior to really about two years ago, a year and a half ago, um, all I knew about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she was one of the people on the Supreme Court who actually said that if she were to... Um, advise people creating a starting a new country today she would advise them to not follow the example of the constitution so she is not someone that i agree with politically she really isn't however that being said it is undeniable her 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 history of women's rights you know, as Melissa just told, just said, I mean, she's, she was hard charging. It was important to her, not only that the court made the right decision, but that they made the right decision for the right reasons. One of the most fascinating things about her to me is that she and Antonin Scalia, who arguably were the most politically opposed on the court, were very close friends. They loved each other dearly. And we're just, it was a platonic relationship, not, there was nothing untoward about it. Um, because she liked being able to have a discussion with someone she disagreed without it devolving into name calling and the stuff you see on the internet every day. You know, she found that his opposition to her was based upon principles that she could understand even if she didn't agree with them. And I remember reading that after Antonin Scalia's death. And it is somehow appropriate to me that Scalia's death during the Obama administration is eerily echoing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death in the Trump administration. Both of them died late in the year of the election year. Actually, uh, Scalia died in February. Oh, it was earlier in the year. Okay, but yeah. it wasn't election year, though. Yes. Right. And 
at the time, I remember it was Obama was the president and um, the Republicans had control of the Senate. And he was. He was being basically was being blocked by Mitch McConnell, which not a huge fan of McConnell's actions at that time. I think Eric and I discussed this at the time and we were both like. I'm not sure this is this is stupid politicking because again, Eric and I have tried for years to look at it, look at things in politics through the lens of how would I feel about it if it was the other side doing it, and we didn't necessarily agree with what McConnell was doing at the time, and I'm not just saying that either. We honestly didn't, you know. So to me, it's it's really interesting seeing a very, very similar situation, although apparently much later in the year, I I sit corrected. So it somehow is appropriate that those two close friends, their deaths garnered a similar reaction politically within their, within their, the movement. I have a lot of respect for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I really did. And that was before I found out about her work routine, which is absolutely ridiculous, her workout routine. But she was someone who was highly principled. She was highly intelligent. And she was able to express her beliefs, champion her beliefs in such a manner where she was not denigrating the other side in any way. I, I never saw yeah. any interviews with her or, or any any things written by her that made me feel like she was being condescending to the other side or insulting to the other side. And that's a delicate balance. I, I think that that's what's really sort of missing in politics and life in general. It, and her attitude that you just described and her approach to, to conversations and arguments and debates. Whereas I don't, I, I don't agree with everybody. I, and I don't think that people are bad because they don't agree with me. And I'd like to think that I've matured over the past couple of years. Thanks to you and Melissa and the listeners who have actually written to me and said, wow, I'm really disappointed in the way that you ripped into somebody. Um, I don't think you need to vilify somebody. Because you don't agree with them politically. And the biggest problem that we're facing right now in the realm of politics is exactly that. You're not going to vote the way I, I vote. So I need to hate you and I need to vilify you and I need to make you feel horrible until you change your mind. I don't, and I don't think that the, the founding fathers be, behaved like that. I don't think well, that they didn't even agree with each other, but you know, they had to have a basic respect for each other to work together. Well, yeah, Jefferson and and uh, Adams, who died on the same day, were great friends throughout their entire lives and completely opposite sides of the political spectrum from each other. Do you know what day they died? July 4th. Is that not ironic? You couldn't put that in a movie and make that believable. <laughs> That is so true. That is so I, true. I can't remember, but one of them said his last words were that he was glad that the other one still lived. And I think the other one had already died, yeah. but he didn't know that, yes. of course. Yes, that was uh, John Adams said that 
Jefferson still lives. And then he didn't know that Jefferson had died. It was like an hour or two previous. And I think that I, I, think, I think, yeah, go ahead, Melissa. I was going to say, I think that a lot of times we think that the founding fathers all were of one mind and they all got together and they wrote the Constitution and they all just shook hands and said, wow, this is great. We agree on everything. And they yeah. didn't. Yeah. And I mean, I and I personally believe that the Constitution is. It's a living document mm -hmm. because you know, things are going to have to change in it because our lives have changed. But the, the basic core of it remains the same, and the core has to be respect. And that the reason that we have a two-party system is that the, both sides can come up with ideas and present the ideas. Yeah. And, bet and between these two parties, sifting through these ideas, find what truly is the best for us. I mean, ideally. Ideally. Right. Uh, I mean, I, the, I, one of the genius, and I'm, this is not my words. I, I actually read this um, from a political commentator, and I, for, I apologize, I forget who it was. They said the genius of the Constitution is not that they were infallible in their decisions it was that they realized they were fallible mm -hmm. and so they built into the constitution a means for it to be adjusted to changing situations you can amend the constitution and as proof of that we have what we refer to as the bill of rights the bill of rights were created as the first 10 amendments to the constitution and if i remember correctly which i may not be because you know cracking um <laughs> The, the the Bill of Rights was actually passed either on the same day or within a short time period of that day as the Constitution itself being ratified. So they didn't waste any time. They were like they wrote the Constitution, they wrote the Bill of Rights, they passed one and passed the other. Because there are certain when you're establishing a framework of government, you also cannot dictate what it is the government can't do. You have to establish, it has to be a, a positive. This is what the government can do. This is what the government can do. This is what the government can do. This is how the government can do this. This is how the government does this, how the government does that. And then the Bill of Rights is, okay, these are the things the government is forbidden from doing. The First Amendment, Second Amendment, all of the first 10 amendments and the 10th amendment everyone forgets is where they say just because we have not listed rights in these 10 amendments does not mean that those rights do not exist but they are relying upon the states and the people to determine what they are and it's to me, it's important because all of our rights, especially the ones that the government cannot intrude upon, are also responsibilities for us. This is something I've been espousing yeah. for well over a decade, is that every right is also a responsibility. You have a right to speak your mind, but you have the burden of speaking it responsibly. You can't just go up and spout lies and nonsense because all of your rights have actions. 
just because you can say whatever you want doesn't mean anyone has to listen, doesn't mean anyone has to agree, and doesn't mean that you are immune from the consequences of what you say. What did Harlan say? Uh, uh, what did Harlan Ellison say about that? Harlan Ellison said, you do not have the right to your opinion. You have the right to your informed opinion. Perfect example. Talking about having issues, cardiac issues, and going to your chiropractor to fix what's wrong with your heart. There's only so much that your chiropractor can do to fix your heart. Like, let's say you have a heart. Cardiologist. Mark, right? Cardiologist. A cardio chiropractor. <laughs> right. You should go <laughs> see a cardiologist. See, this is how much gin and tonic I've had tonight. Hold on a second here. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, and you know what really makes that gin and tonic so much better? Because I drank it from Someone my... Someone else made it? No, it's I drank it from my... Uh, my gin and tonic tumbler that you can get yourself by going to zazzle.com slash fedora chronicles. <laughs> um, your chiropractor can only do so much for your heart. And it's a lot less than what the cardiologist can do. Uh, right. The cardiologist, on the other hand, is a person that you should go see for his expert opinion on what's wrong with your heart. Did that make any sense or did I bungle that again too? No, good enough. Okay. <laughs> you may you might have an opinion on when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson passed away. You can say you have the opinion or you believe that they died on Christmas. But the fact is they died on July 4th. Your opinion only goes so far. And I'd like to believe that we live in a society where informed opinions are more valuable than uneducated ones or ones from celebrities. Like if, like if, if you go online and you talk to... Um, Dave Matthews from the Dave Matthews band. And you say, Dave Matthews, I'm having a problem with my heart. And he says to you, have you, have you tried essential oils? Oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to go out and try some essential oils right now. Maybe that'll fix my heart murmur. Now, who's the bigger fool? You for going to Dave Matthews looking for advice on your heart murmur. Or Dave Matthews for dispensing that, ad that advice. Not all opinions are created equal. And I think that we've lost sight on that. The entire notion is that you're entitled to your own opinion. But yes, that's true, but only so far. Well, I, I would argue that you are entitled to your, opinion, your opinion, and you can spout all the nonsense you want. But again, no one has to listen to you. You are not free from anyone pointing out that, okay, you can say that Thomas Jefferson and Douglas Adams both died within hours of each other on Christmas Day. But you're wrong on a few things. It was John Adams, and it wasn't Christmas Day. You are not free from being proven wrong or incorrect. 
you can say whatever you want. Right. You're still entitled to that. So I, I guess I'm disagreeing with Harlan Ellison on this. But he was a sci-fi writer anyway, wasn't yeah, he? Well, he? And just like Frank Herbert, he was also a great philosopher, in my opinion, in my informed opinion. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. You don't know who Harlan Ellison is? He was the writer of the Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, my God. Him? Yes. Yes. Okay. We forgive you. Do you, though? I don't forgive myself. <laughs> and I'm, I'm perfectly okay with disagreeing with him. So, <laughs> but it's just, whether you're informed or not doesn't lessen the fact that you can have an opinion. It lessens how much other people are going to listen to that opinion and how much credence they're going to give it. You know, it's it's like the Black Lives Matter movement. There are people in the Black Lives Matter movement who are going up to people in the street and surrounding them in a mob and telling them they need to raise their fist and shout out Black Lives Matter or they're going before they are they're not going to get left alone or there's a threat of violence if they don't say it right. kind of a thing. That's not cool. That's where they they have a right to gather. They have a right to tell everybody, we believe Black Lives Matter. We believe when we say that, we're saying this, that, and the other thing. They do not have the right to mob someone and shame them into saying something and espousing an opinion they may or may not agree with. That is not a peaceful protest. If you get in someone's face... That is technically assault, especially if you raise your hand. Yeah. If you're within someone's personal space and you raise your hand, that is legal assault. If you actually touch them, that is battery. So once you've done that, you are no longer a peaceful protest. Never mind the Molotov cocktails, the burning down the stores, the looting and all the rioting and all that other kind of crap. Just the fact that you're trying to stop someone from going about their daily business means you are no longer a peaceful protest. And to be fair, Black Lives Matter weren't the first people to do that. To be fair, it goes all the way back to the civil rights movement. And when I say that, I don't mean Martin Luther King was preventing people from going about their daily business. I mean the white supremacist assholes that didn't agree with him we're trying to stop them from protesting by blocking the streets. And just because those people that did that were sometimes wearing police uniforms does not mean what they were doing was the right thing, nor was it legal. Right. So no one's really innocent in this. You know what I mean? And and that's that's just that's just how I see it. I mean, I, I disagree with Harlan Ellison yet again because I'm not a big fan of Harlan Ellison. I'm shocked. Shocked. Well, I go ahead, Melissa. <laughs> go ahead, Melissa. I think I think everyone is um, entitled to their own opinion as far as it comes to my face. Right. I mean, it, I I. I've had people shout things in my face, uh, not Black Lives Matter, because I'd probably shout it right back to them, because 
I do believe that Black Lives Matter, uh, as well as, you know, if if people will say all lives matter, and if they can say all lives matter, then they should be able to say Black Lives Matter. Yeah. If they truly believe all lives matter. Uh, but a lot of times if, if people say all lives matter, they can't say Black Lives Matter. But I've, I've been on the receiving end of uh, more scary people than that. Uh, and... Yeah, you're entitled to your opinion, and I'm entitled to take off a piece of your nose. <laughs> yep, yep. I because I, I do think that I people do cross lines when they're trying to make their point and put their the point across and make it you know let everybody know that um, their opinion is far more more important than your safety or something crazy like that. And maybe that maybe that's a bad oh, wise uh, example. There are people who are obnoxious I, and get in your face and try and tell you something. I feel like I'm interrupting you and you're about to say something more important. Please go ahead. I think that probably Carol, if she was here, uh, even though I don't know her, I've only heard her on your podcast. She might be able to say the same thing, too, that as a woman, a lot of times you are told your opinion really doesn't matter. And even into the 21st century, there's still people that believe that. Oh, yeah. And and that is just, it was horrifying to me in the 80s because I thought my mother's generation had already fought that battle for us. And um, I came across it then. I came across it last week. Um, and I think that we've gotten so in our society that we believe that other people's opinions don't matter our opinions are the only ones mm -hmm. and i see it on social media i see it on uh, television i hear it on the radio where if someone says this is what i believe or this is what i've seen the response by from some highly educated intellectual person might be bullshit. And, and that's, that's their argument. And, you know, every time the other person says, would you care to elaborate on why I'm wrong? It's just bullshit. And there's no intellectual conversation anymore. It's all angry. It's all yelling. It's all denigrating the other person. It's not, I have a different opinion. I have a different experience. Uh, I have a different viewpoint. It's, you're just full of bullshit. Yeah. And that's that's sad and that's awful. Um, and I actually catch myself saying that once in a while. I, I do too, myself. I mean, this is something we all have to work on. And I really admire both you and Jay because... I know you both try to look at things from more than one viewpoint. Well, thank you very much. And I'm humbled by that. And, I, and here's the thing. I didn't know enough about Ruth Gator. I'm sorry. I want to be respectful and get her Bader. name right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I didn't know enough about her. And I thought it's just the it's just another passing of another Supreme Court justice. It's sad and all like that. But I didn't really know about her history and the long fights 
that she had for equality for women and a lot of the rights that my wife enjoys today as a career woman. And I think that the problem is, is that it's like with, with so many people, she's on the wrong side of the political aisle. So I have to vilify her. That's, that's, that's awful. And so that's wrong. And, and how, and how did this happen? Or has it always been this bad? And now that I'm doing a podcast, I'm paying more attention to it. Am I just noticing it or are, or are things getting worse? I would argue that from my perspective anyway, I don't think it's getting worse. I think it's, it's getting more attention. I remember being a kid and growing up, my dad was always the crazy uncle that espoused the crazy political theories when we got together at family reunions, right? That was my dad. And I remember getting into a discussion with one of my aunts when after September 11th, when we invaded Afghanistan, this particular aunt has more degrees than than a thermometer. She's overeducated and underemployed. And I remember talking to her and my uncle and she was talking about how Bush lied. I'm like, how did he lie? He was going by information from not just the C, his own intelligence agencies, but that of seven other nations, two of whom are not our political allies. So where is the lie in that? Because he should have known. I'm like, yeah, but he didn't know. Just because it's not objectively true doesn't mean he lied. A lie yeah. is when you are telling an untruth knowing it is untrue. That doesn't mean he lied. It means he was uninformed. She said, no, it's not. He was lying. I said, why? Because it's George Bush. She said, you're goddamn right it is. And then her face just stopped. Yeah. And I looked at her and I just, well, there you go. And she just stormed off. You're just like your father. And I looked at my uncle and he went, yeah, I'm going to go get a drink. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I think it's always been there. I think with the internet, it's just more on display. And I think the internet, and you and I have talked about this several times, both on the podcast and yep. not, the, the internet allows us to, to seek out and find our own echo chambers. And we all would rather have an echo chamber than to have our ideas challenged. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely, totally right. Uh, and I was going to make a joke saying, no, you're wrong. And uh, just to be obstinate, just to make a joke. But it's like, um, I, I don't, I'm trying to get confirmation on this while I'm listening to you. Um, something across my news wire about how a Trump supporter committed suicide after a violent confrontation on the street. I'm trying to get confirmation on this. No, he did. It was... Um... He, he was working and he owned a bar and then someone approached him and they kind of got into his face and he was armed and had a gun and he kind of got back in their face. And then there was multiple people on the other side involved. And according to their testimonies, what happened? These are the testimonies of the people who disagreed with him. One of their companions grabbed him around the neck from behind and he grabbed onto his gun pointed it behind him and shot blindly, not knowing where the guy's face was, shot him in the head, killed him instantly. 
he was not indicted because they're like it's clear clearly self-defense there was a another riot slash protest kind of a thing and he was being brought up on charges from a federal um on a federal indictment in the meantime between he initially being told you did nothing wrong to finding out he's being brought up on federal charges for doing nothing wrong he lost his livelihood because the people that owned the building he was renting out for his bar canceled his lease because they didn't like the attention that they were getting. Um, he started having family problems. He had, he is a, a military veteran who apparently may have had some form of PTSD. And then he took his life like two days before he was scheduled to go into the court and enter a guilty plea. I think I think I think this is this is out of control. I think I think we're looking at the Nebraska bar owner Jake Gardner. I'm I'm not sure if that's the one. I'm just double checking really quick. Yeah. And it was um Did we Well, go ahead, please. Did we go into the story that uh the man he shot wasn't even part of the group wrestling him down. He walked up to him. That's one of the reports that I saw. Well, that's that he, where yeah, see, that's where things have changed between the initial people saying, hey, he's innocent, and then the federal indictment is apparently they're saying there's some of the some of them change their stories to say he pulled out his gun because he was angry and this guy just walked up behind him and he turned around and shot him. So it's crazy and out of control. I mean, yeah. we've got too many people losing their lives and livelihoods and i don't know i worry when i hear things about groups that are attaching themselves to groups that have a good message that they're trying to put forward and say this is what needs to be changing and then all the violence seems to be happening around that that I would think that if I wanted to make a protest about something, I think I would be afraid of the violence from people that wouldn't even be my uh, supporters coming in. Yeah. See, and that's where one of the things that I get frustrated with is people always lump in the riots with Black Lives Matter. Now, to be clear, Black Lives Matter does not really have a central leadership. Mm -mm. There are individual movements in every city. Um, they all fall under that umbrella. There's a group of three women who claim to be the leadership of them that are all Marxists by their own admission. And not all chapters of Black Lives Matter agree with them on everything, but they still consider themselves to be Black Lives Matter. I've seen far too many videos of people actual peaceful protesters that are Black Lives Matter trying to stop rioters for me to believe that the two groups are working in unison. I don't think they are. I think the rioters and a lot of the violence is happening by opportunists. People who are just pissed off, who are just malcontents, who are, you know, um, anarchists, whatever. They're just going out rioting and looting and doing violence because that's what they want to do. 
and I saw an article, and I wish I could remember where it was. I think it was on the blaze of three rather large members of Black Lives Matter surrounding a lone white police officer. They had their backs to him. They had their arms locked, and they were acting as a living wall separating this white cop from a bunch of anti-cop rioters who wanted to basically kill him. And they were standing in the way, ensuring he was okay until other police came to save him. I saw that. Right? So you can't tell me that all of these riots are happening because of Black Lives Matter. That's like saying, you know, I didn't drive off the road because I'm a bad driver. I drove off the road because the road was icy. Well, you were not driving safely on an icy road then. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just because one is a catalyst doesn't mean it's at fault. The Black Lives Matter protests are one thing. The riots are something different. And ironically, the ones that are screwing it up and confusing it the most seem to be the people who politically agree with Black Lives Matter the most, which is in this day and age, the, the Democrat move, the Democrat Party. They don't want to stop the riots because they think, you know, Black Lives Matter is important. And it's like, okay, but they're not Black Lives Matter. These are militaristic, violent anarchists who are just out to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, they'll say Black Lives Matter. They'll spray paint Black Lives Matter on shit. They don't give a shit. They don't re they're not really part of that movement. They're just using that as an opportunity because they know, especially in Oregon, the DA won't prosecute them if they say they're Black Lives Matter. Well, so they can, that's a get out of jail free card. Do whatever the fuck you want. One of the things I'd also like to interject here that is pouring fuel on this fire is the militarization of the police. Yes. One of the things that you and I have talked about a lot, Jay, is the way the police have been militarized since September 11th, 2001. Perfect example, Alumni Weekend and the Pumpkin Festival fell on the same Saturday in Keene, New Hampshire. And because of these uh, drunk frat boys and um, inebriated alumni got obnoxious, the Keene Police Department and I believe the State Department in that region, the, the State Police Department, dispatched, I guess, the SWAT unit. That's, that's, that may not be what they're called, but that's exactly what they look like. With the military-style vehicles that were painted all navy blue with, with uh, white police writing on it or all black, they look terrifying. And it actually caused, I don't, I don't know if I want to say the word riot, but it was a pretty ugly situation. And because of that, there is no more Keen Pumpkin Festival. <laughs> and it, the Pumpkin Festival was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest of its kind. The militarized police exasperated the situation. Because they showed up in this military-style track and riot gear. Right. I don't know what to so say that about is, that. Um, having, you know, having received training in 
in, in de-escalation. I'll just phrase it that way. Um, they failed at their jobs. Their jobs were to de-escalate the situation. The best way to stop a riot is to prevent it from happening. The best way to ensure a riot happens is to show up in force, military force, armed and armed to the teeth and ready to go. That's how the massacre at Keene State happened. You had a bunch of hippies out there getting high, singing, chanting, and a bunch of hyped up people with guns facing them. So all it took was one of those hippies to say something or do something that could be misinterpreted the wrong way. And next thing you know, you got a bloodbath. More dead in Ohio. And that's, that's how those things happen. Police are trained to de-escalate. There's no reason, no reason at all why the police need to have a toned down freaking um, basically a tank. You know, there's no reason for that. No. They don't need that to do their day-to-day jobs. I was having a discussion with um, with my daughter the other day when she got home from work at like 8.30 in the morning. And one of the things we were talking about, she asked me, what would you do to solve the problem? And I'm like, well, first of all, I demilitarize the police, Right. Part of the problem is most 911 in the country is run by a police department. So by having that be a police resource, what they're doing is that's going to be the first people that get called, right? So they also work with like medical emergency services and the fire department, and that's it. But who's to say that if a call comes in for, you know, a domestic violence case, you shouldn't have a social worker or somebody there with the police and the police pull up out front, stay in their car, maybe get out of their car and let the social worker go up and see if she can deescalate it. The police are there to stop people and property from getting damaged. That's their job. That's why they exist. They're not always trained and equipped, and it's not realistic to expect them to be trained and equipped to deal with all those situations. And then because they lack that training, because they lack the proper equipment, they're going to accidentally escalate something that doesn't need to be escalated. You know, And this is where you have these people who say, we need to defund the police. That's not what they're saying. That's what. That's how they're phrasing it. Oh, and what that is just saying, such a stupid phrasing because it just makes the people that would actually support the action question uh, go against it. Right. I'm all for having more options. If you call into nine one one, I'm all for having more options. Someone very close to me earlier this year was suicidal. I called seven different suicide hotlines. Only one picked up. And when they spoke to this person, the only thing they said was, wow, that really sucks. You probably need help. <laughs> the fuck? You're the suicide yeah. hotline. Why do you think I'm calling you? <laughs> I'm not calling you to say, wow, that sucks. You need help. 
I mean, I suppose, thank you for saying, yeah, you really should kill yourself. I'm glad you didn't say that, but God damn, do your goddamn job. Sort of like the, the fuck? sort of like, like the joke, the tasteless joke that occurred after Jeffrey Epstein's death. Suicide watch does not mean watch them commit suicide. You know, a suicide right. hotline is supposed to prevent you from committing suicide. I, I think the, I think the three of us can agree that I think that maybe some of the resources that goes into militarizing the police should go to other services like suicide hotline and prevention or the suicide prevention hotline might be a better way to call it or, or label it. I think that there's a, a lot of the resources that we're pouring into and, and dare I say it, and I, and I, and I know I'm going to take heat for saying this. And we talked about this on our last show, Jay, how many trillions of dollars have we poured into the war on terror and how we're occupied in these other countries for no other reason other than the fact that, well, I mean, we're here, we might as well stay attitude. How many billions or trillions of dollars have we spent on the war on drugs and trying to uh, uh, curb the tide of marijuana coming into the country only to have people in the government finally come to their senses and realize there are bigger fish to fry besides whether or not people blaze up on a joint. We should right. be spending now, our resources. And by the way, we're running out of money. We're running out of funds. There are only so many treasure bond, treasury bonds right. that you could print Did and sell. Did you see sell. what happened in um, Minneapolis? No. Why don't you two tell me? Apparently the Minneapolis Police Department or the Minneapolis City Council who have been saying they want to eliminate the police, not just defund them, but eliminate the police force and replace them with something else. They have been seeing an increase in violence in the streets, and they recently called the chief of police in front of him to in in a tribunal to ask him why the hell he's not doing his job. Well, didn't they fire it before they they brought him oh, up? This is the new. This is the one oh, that the replaced one. him. Yeah, this oh, okay. is the new guy. Who you know, they fired the other guy for doing his job, and now they want this guy. They want to know why this guy's not doing his job. And this, and then people who agree with the defund the police movement, but understand that it's not about literally defunding the police, but it's about expanding other services. I don't know if I lost connection with you guys. We've been having problems with our internet. <laughs> well, isn't that a new television show, Lost Internet? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Oh, there it is. There we go. Yeah, sorry about that. Like I said, we just lost the we just lost the internet for a couple of seconds here. Well, that's not what you said. What? You said you lost lost the internet. Oh my god! I just looked at what I wrote. For folks who don't know, for folks who who uh, who are still tuned in, uh, I just wrote we lost lost internet. <laughs> that's what happens when you type too fast. And and, oh, yeah. and actually, lost internet is the new um, coronavirus version of Lost, where all the cast members just sit at home and have cameras t uh, turned on to them, and they do the show. <laughs> and, and 
And Eric is the biggest fan of lost internet. <laughs> oh my God. The truth is out. The truth is out. <laughs> I can live my truth now. Um, I'm just looking at, I'm just looking at the time here and it's coming up at 10 o'clock. Um, it, it's four minutes to 10 on the Fedora Chronicles radio show. Um, top of the hour news and sports and weather with Carol. So anyway, I, I think that we have to wrap this up and I think that the, the solution that we have sort of come up with is a version of defund the police, but not get rid of the police, allocate some of those funds towards other programs that are more beneficial to society and not just allow society to devolve into anarchy. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Well, I would, I don't think, I think we agree not, we shouldn't call it defund the police. We should call it expand our options. Okay. Then, then How about refund the police. Refund. Refund. <laughs> refund. I'd like to I get like a that. refund. I'd like to get a refund on my police. <laughs> no, really, seriously, I think that that's that's probably a better. Hello, nine one one. I called last week, and I'm really, really unhappy with uh, my response. Can I get a? Can I get a? Uh, can you give me like a twenty five percent off coupon for next time? Sure, we'll send that coupon on twenty five percent off your next tax bill right away. <laughs> So, um, so I'm kind of I'm kind of getting the signal that we need to wrap this up. Does it, congratulations on surviving another episode of the Fedora Chronicles Radio Show. Find out more about the Fedora Chronicles by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com. That's where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram by simply searching for us on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so that you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at google.com, are great ways to drop us a line with your comments and show topic suggestions. And if it's any good, we promise we will read your comment on the air. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page patreon.com slash fedora chronicles for a mere dollar a month you get early access to the podcast updates on what we're doing and for five dollars a month you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug of your choice terms and conditions apply thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing you can also support the show and show off your incredible impeccable taste by buying our merch at Zazzle.com slash store slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme songs for the show are Royal Flush and Black Cabaret by Olive Music. All other music on the show is listed on the show page and has been provided to us by Premium Beats from Shutterstock. Copyright the Fedora Chronicles 2020. All rights reserved. On behalf of my co-host Jason and I, this is Eric Renner King Fisk signing off and reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on.